As a mom or a dad, what do you do when your child asks you questions about God that you can't answer or they say they don't know if they believe or not? This is the Thriving Student Podcast. I'm John Fuller, and my co-host is our Vice President of Parenting and Youth here at Focus on the Family, Danny Huerta. We're talking about faith today and passing on the baton of faith. Danny, this is something that's core to Christian parents in particular. We want to make sure our kids grab on to uh, faith and they believe in God, they follow Jesus. But so many children seem to be ignoring that heart's desire and the instruction they're given. Why, why is that? You know, what I've found is a lot of kids are looking for peace, they're looking for authenticity, and there are many different types of things going on in the culture that promise peace or authenticity in different ways other than Christianity. And there's been uh, disillusionment with the church and other things because of the imperfections that are there. They're expecting Christians to be perfect. That's a mindset rather than broken Christians in a place needing Jesus for healing. For some reason, we've set up the church as having to be perfect when it's not. And really, parents are currently in a, in a place where they're, they're nervously watching other people's kids leave the faith mm. and then expecting or anticipating that their own are going to do the same. There's a lot of questioning, a lot of opinions and options there. Two superpowers were given, our choice and thought. God's given us those. He's given us opportunity for decision-making and choice. Make sure you're praying daily for your children and then giving them the truth and seeing how you're modeling a Christian faith and a trust, a true trust in this God, in Jesus hmm. that you believe in. And they will watch that. Even if they start to waver, they'll watch how you're handling adversity and pain and difficulty and disappointment. And they'll be thirsty for that at some point. Hmm. I like the thirst uh, aspect of that. We don't want to club them into the kingdom, so to speak. We want to live a life that is appealing and winsome yes. and that they they thirst for that kind of relationship with God. Well, Jim Daly and I had a conversation with Dr. Tony Evans about this, and he is so persuasive. Uh, we talked about his book, Raising Kingdom Kids, Giving Your Child a Living Faith. Let's go ahead and listen to that now. Hey, Tony, I'm serious about that. I, uh, you know, I played sports, and I had a great football coach, Paul Morrow, who uh, really did a lot to put me on the right trajectory. Thankfully, he was a, is a Christian man, and that made the biggest difference, just to see it modeled. And uh, you're kind of like that in a pastoral role, mm-hmm. aren't you? You, you grab the, the dads by the face mask and say, come on, run those wind sprints, and well, translate it into uh, how we, we should try. do that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the jobs of a pastor, and that is to to lovingly hold the congregation responsible to their kingdom responsibilities. Are we too soft within our relationships, within the Christian community? Mm-hmm. Are we just too soft with each other? Oh, I, I love that word you just used. We are definitely too soft. Uh, you know, uh, in fact, that's why so many men are not even involved in church, because it's like going to a, a female event. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, there, there's no challenge. There's no, there's no territory to capture. There's no victory to be won. It's just feeling good about the songs we're singing and the word we're hearing. No, no, no. The, the, the kingdom of God, the Bible says, must be taken by force. So you got to man up to do this thing mm-hmm. and to do it right. That just sounds, yeah, it sounds like a different thing. It doesn't sound like what we're concentrating on. Men need a challenge, don't they? Uh, yes. It sounds counterintuitive, though. Let me tell you, when somebody grabs your face mask and says you're not doing the job, it gets your attention. It makes you want to do better. How do we apply that in our spiritual walk? 
Uh, you, what you're saying is being soft isn't going to get a guy motivated. Being in his face probably does a better job of getting them on the right track. Which means that he's got to be held accountable with somebody who has the responsibility and legitimate authority to get in his faith if he needs faith getting into. Well, so. let me, yeah, let me ask you this because, you know, with, with wives, I don't want to – my wife is wonderful about maintaining center focus. I mean, she, in the home, she's great at that. But women just almost innately – know to do that. Why Why in the gender roles uh, are we more uh, easily persuaded to watch the news than get off our backsides and, and read scripture with well, the kids? Well, this may not be a nice statement, but we're living in the day of the feminized male. Okay. We're living in the day of men who have been so watered down by the biblical definition of manhood in light of what the culture is doing that we have reneged and relinquished on our responsibility. That's why you got so many men walking away from homes and walking away from girls that get pregnant that they're not married to and walking away from the responsibilities, even if they're still there because they have been feminized. So we need to get back to the biblical male and, Isaiah chapter 3, it says that the whole culture was turned upside down. He says, your women rule, your children are in rebellion because your men are failing. And when God came looking for Adam, he didn't say, Adam and Eve, where are y'all? He said, Adam, where are you? You're responsible, even if you're not to blame. You're responsible. So when men need to hear, God is holding you responsible for the atmosphere in your home. Okay, now a lot of guys are going, uh-oh, I better switch the station. Yeah, this is guilty. Because this is getting all uh, hit the guy thing. But you're, you're bringing the truth. Well, here's why you shouldn't turn the station. <laughs> you shouldn't turn the station because in a football game, the goal is to win. So you're going to get bumps and bruises along the way going down the field. But the issue is, are you going to whine because you got tackled? Or are you going to get up and call a new play because mm. there's a goal line you're trying to cross? Mm. We're living in a culture today that is destroying our children. If you want to build a skyscraper downtown, you can always know how high they plan to go up by how low they drill down. The higher they plan to go up, the lower they're going to drill down because you cannot build a skyscraper on the foundation of a chicken coop. you got to have a foundation worthy of what you're trying to build. Every parent wants their children to have skyscraper lives. Well, then you better dig deep foundations so that that will not crumble when the culture comes after them. Wow. I mean, that is it. And you've written this book, uh, Raising Kingdom Kids. That's it. I mean, you're bringing it. You make a parallel there in your book about Babylon and the modern culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's people are already thinking of that now that I've said it. But what did you discern about Babylon and where we're at today? Well, you know, Daniel chapter 1, Daniel and his, his friends, his three Hebrew friends, uh, uh, were, were taken out of their godly environment. They were taken out of Israel and brought to Babylon. So now they have to learn to live in a secular society. We are in a secular society that no longer values our Christian values as a society. That's so important. Everybody hear that? That is so true. And we've got to get a hold of that in this country. We're in a post-Christian era. Like it or not, we've mm. contributed to it just like Israel contributed to their failure but we have to deal with this reality. There are a couple of things in that first chapter, Daniel, that are critical for us as parents today. Number one, they tried to reculturalize Daniel and his friends. They gave them they gave them Babylonian names. They sent them to Babylonian schools. They told them to read Babylonian books. They even gave them Babylonian jobs because they wanted to de-Israelize them and pro-Babylonize them. So that's exactly what's happening today. Remove the Christian value system, put in the secular system. But it says Daniel made up in his mind 
meaning Daniel's parents, the end of Daniel's name is L. L is God. So when they named him, they gave him a God name. So that tells us that Daniel's parents, and, and that's true of the other three Hebrew boys too, they have a God name at the end of their name. They were raised in a world that emphasized God so that when they were in a secular culture, while they maximized their potential there, they made a decision that there's only so far I go, I'm not going to eat the king's meat. Then it says, now God. But God only intervened on their behalf after they made the Mm -hmm. decision that had been influenced by the home they were raised in, even though they were in a secular society. So once they showed themselves faithful to God, then God responded. So you want your kids to have God's name stamped on them, even in a public school that may be secular, a job that may be secular, in an environment that may be secular, so that they have boundaries they will not go. So when they make that decision, they'll see the supernatural enter the natural and shift things around just as Daniel did. Hey, Tony, this is really good. This is good stuff, and I'm intrigued by it. How are we teaching our children, or how should we be teaching our children to engage a post-Christian culture? Because, again, in the church itself, we've got some competing views here that we do it by force, by ballot, by just sheer control and power. Or more like what Jesus was discussing in the New Testament, which is you're going to show them the kingdom and it's going to draw people to me. Well, we've got to, first of all, on an information level, we've got to review what they're being taught and give a God response to it so that they know what the other side is, what God's side is against what they're hearing in the culture. That's one. Then they've got to see us model that before them in the decisions we make, and as we make key decisions that they should or need to know about, give them the spiritual impetus for why we made that decision. So now they're seeing us operate that way, not hearing us just tell them to operate that way. The third thing we've got to do is surround them with others. Daniel had Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, and he had three friends around him who shared his value system. So you have to Give your kids an environment where that can be, those principles, those values can be reinforced mm. so they don't feel like they're the Lone Ranger. Mm. A solid church will help do that. We cannot skip the change that's taking place in, the, in, in our world. Notice, Daniel did not drop out of the king's school. He did not refuse to read the king's book. He did not turn down the king's job, and he even accepted the king's clothes. So it's not that he was in this isolated Christian world, but he had a standard that he was not willing to negotiate on. So when kids understand, it's not all no, 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 no. There are a lot of yeses here, and I can even get an expanded boundary mm-hmm. by obedience. Mm-hmm. Then there's a reward motivation, and there's a lot of reward motivation in Scripture. You know, Tony, you're touching something that is so important. It's the difference between principle and style, if I could mm-hmm. put it that way. And I think, again, uh, we as type A Christian parents, and I put myself in that category because I want it done well, mm-hmm. um, we can often misinterpret style and principle uh, that's really what you're talking about, sure. isn't it? H- sure. How do you do a good job? Is it a straight line or is it kind of, uh, you know, a bit wobbly? Uh, what's the difference between a principle and style within our expression of our faith? Well, when it, anything that the Bible does not condemn is allowable. See, we have to understand that principle. Once you start putting new things in there, you're adding to the word. And what a lot of parents do is they take style, give it a principle-sounding statement, operate on that, thus producing legalism, resulting in rebellion. Mm. 
Mm. Whatever is not condemned is allowed. And that's why there's so many statements in the Bible about freedom. It says uh, in, in, in Romans chapter 14 that uh, a person is able to choose based on their conscience. It tells a widow, marry whomever you will, only in the Lord. The boundary is in the Lord, but you get to choose. There are a whole lot of freedom state. The kids, our children should be known more for the freedom we grant them than the restrictions we impose on them. Mm. Boy, that is, uh, wow. That seems That's like we're not even close to that. Yeah. But those restrictions need to be so strong that when they step on that on, on that boundary line, that whistle going to blow. <laughs> and the you penalty know. flag comes That's right. Out. That's right. Hey, let's talk a moment about uh, the single parent. It can be either a mom or a dad. Oftentimes when we talk in the context of single mom, we get mail and emails from dads saying, hey, we're out here too. Absolutely. So I want to make sure uh, they know that we're acknowledging that. We're talking about a single parent. Most often it's mom. Most and uh, in that context, uh, talk about the job that they've got because they don't have the help of the other spouse to be there, to give a perspective. And so often as uh, two people joining to become one flesh, your complementary nature comes into that. And I'm talking about your your uh, personality and your intellect. So Gene sees things differently uh, from how I see them. Mm-hmm. But talking together, we are stronger in our parenting because of the strengths we each bring to it. I just, my heart breaks for the single parent that doesn't have that asset, that other person to say, what do you think? Uh, Speak to that person. Well, first of all, God has not forgotten the single parent. Um, uh, Hagar was a single parent in an unfortunate situation with Abraham and Sarah, and yet God met her and said, I got you. Mm -hmm. I know you're out here by yourself, but I got you. The mother of Jesus started out as a single parent. She got pregnant. She wasn't married, even though it was the perfect son of God. She started out as a single parent. Uh, Timothy might as well not have had a father because his father was not in the picture. And he was raised and influenced spiritually by his mother and grandmother. And yet he turned out to be a great pastor. So uh, God has a lot of illustrations of successful single parents. And there are a lot of successful single parents who are hearing us today. But here's what you can do. Get your child and children involved in a solid church that offers them quality ministry of the word relevant to where they are based on their age. Then seek through that church, if possible, a a responsible mentoring relationship where there's a man who works with a group of boys or a girl, lady who works with a group of girls that, that can then reinforce that missing parent mm. side of things. Or perhaps you have a Christian relative who you trust who can become that father if you're a single mother uh, and, and have that influence and you become part of their extended family because there's already a connection there because there are some missing links. All right, Dr. Tony Evans brought up uh, the fact that it's a man's job to lead his household well. Uh, Danny, this is important. How important is it for our kids to understand God through the dad in the home? I think it's essential. I remember the first time my daughter said, yeah, I can see how you remind me of my Heavenly Father, that God has put a mom and a dad in that spot. She told me that uh, not too long ago. Mm. That was pretty powerful for me, a little bit overwhelming, uh, because we are getting to fill a role of love, a deep love, but it's very broken compared to the love yeah, we get from God. Yeah, we're imperfect, and he's oh, perfect. super imperfect. Yeah. And so it's not to put pressure on it, but she saw the depth of love that we have, and I think it's the time, the focus. It's not about being perfect as a parent. It's about being able to show compassion and grace to a child and understanding that's deep, that's only unique 
to a parent-child relationship where you learn about who your child is and not trying to mold them into someone, but really learning who God created them to be. And uh, some words that I like to live by is pay attention, be a noticer, notice who this child is, but then also be authentic, authentic with, I'm not trying to be perfect as a a believer in God, but being authentic with my Heavenly Father and, and having those deep conversations with Him and looking for moments of connection. So I really look for opportunities to connect things, whether it's we're taking a hike and connecting nature with who this giant God is. What does nature tell us about who God is? What does the Bible tell us about who God is? What do our relationships tell us about who God is? God is big, and we get to learn about him in many different ways. And I love when I get to try to make those connections for my kids and and, and plug those. Like he said, we're God's masterpieces. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? And I get to explain that to my kids. We pray together and make time for that. We have meal times together, and research has shown that more kids that have those meal times together and have parents that intentionally share their faith, they're going to be the ones that continue with the faith. So maybe saying no to certain things so that you have that time together is one of the best things you can do this coming mm-hmm. school year. Well, I appreciate that reminder. And yes, as we get into new rhythms for the school year, make those meal times a centerpiece of your home so you can connect with your kids. And for me growing up, Danny, I remember the laughter around the table. I think that's a part of God that we don't reflect enough to our kids. Now, we've got a lot of great resources to help you in this aspect of uh, raising your kids to know and love God. Certainly, Dr. Evans' book, Raising Kingdom Kids, Giving Your Child a Living Faith, is a key resource, and we'll be happy to send a copy of that to you when you make a generous donation to the work of Focus on the Family. Uh, Look for that book, donate, and uh, sign up for the best year-ever email resource that we can provide you on a regular basis. Uh, All of this at focusonthefamily.com slash thrivingstudent. Well, turning a corner, we know that kids are facing challenges to live out their faith in the school environment. It's so hostile sometimes two people of faith, and we're going to turn to a conversation with Aaron McPherson and Ellen Schuchnack. Uh, they're co-authors, and they happen to be a mom and her daughter, and uh, they met with Jim Daly and me to talk about teaching your child to love God, even with all the pressures going on at school. Hey, let me ask you about another one that caught my attention, genuine faith. It's interesting that you list it that way as opposed to just faith. What do you mean by genuine faith? We want our kids to behave well, and parents want their kids to be respectful and know how to be kind in their words when they talk to adults. And we're looking at these outward appearances, and it's very easy to replace the gospel with moralism. How do you create a lesson like that? Let's let's just go through it, first, second, third grade. Give us an example of teaching genuine faith, a Christ-heartedness with your child. Give us a picture of that. Well, I'm going to say, like I always say, my mom was working on her blog the other day and I was reading it and it was talking about the desires of your heart. And if a kid just desires to be good so they don't get in trouble, then their desire may, it may work when they're eight and it's easy, but when it gets hard, they don't. And so she was talking about how to teach kids to truly desire God and to truly know him. And part of that involves knowing him and knowing who he is and how he works with us. So I think a big lesson for that is just helping kids to learn to desire God. 
And not focusing so much on outcomes. I think parents want good grades. We all want our kids to be so successful, as you said. But the, it's the process. It's what they do along the way mm-hmm. that they're learning more about who they are and who God is. I remember having lunch with Chuck Colson uh, before he passed away, and we miss him desperately. But he said to me, after looking at some research that was done at the time, this is a couple of years ago, and uh, he said the moral fiber, the, the moral direction, the compass of a child is really formed by about age 10. And then the teen years are really the boundaries in which those things can be tested or will be tested by many children. I found that both frightening yet engaging. By about 10, that part of your parenting is pretty much over. They're going to have their moral compass either in a good way or in a not-so-good way. So as a, as a parent, what are those key things that we need to do to ensure their compass is strong? I think the big difference between knowing what's right and wrong and wanting to do right is a big difference. And I think a lot of parents, me included sometimes, are so caught up in the discipline, consequence, discipline, that they forget that that's just kind of a surface level thing. And there has to be a bigger connection and a deeper understanding of who God is and what he wants from us. How do you get there? Well, I'd, I'd just like to say that you're so right when you talked about Chuck Colson saying the moral compass is developed. And I think what he's saying is that kids by 10 know what's right and wrong. Mm-hmm. There's no reason to keep harping and lecturing and telling them what's right and wrong. By that age, they need to then experience and try it out, and they need to learn the consequences of their choices, both good and bad. That when they're treating their friends poorly, their friends won't like them. When they're not turning in their homework, their grades suffer. That there are consequences, and that they're seeing that knowing what's good is not enough. They need to learn to desire good and desire God and let out of that flow the right decisions and see that concept. Mm. I need to ask this question because I think, again, as parents, we often want and expect the perfect outcome. Mm -hmm. And so we're on our kids about that. And no matter what it is, grades, behavior, Mm -hmm. and in many ways, it's good to have that expectation. Mm -hmm. But we also have to leave room for experiential learning. In other words, what you're saying is, if you go beyond that boundary, here's what's going to happen. How does a parent move from uh, kind of that younger age where maybe they're five or six into the seven, eight age group where they need to kind of figure it out. You need to let them feel the pain and consequence of their decision. Whereas before, it's almost like you're moving from that parent to more of a coach, if I could say it that way. Well, it's interesting that you would say that. That's what we call our parents in those years. And we train our parents at the school where my grandchildren go to move out of that teacher role to a coach alongside as the child is trying on right behavior, and they often in the process will try on wrong behavior, Mm. and allowing them the freedom to make mistakes, the freedom to fail, and feel on their own what that feels like, because then they change. Again, is it when you're in that public environment particularly, the freedom to fail, that's a kind of a bigger pill for mom and dad to swallow. Well, this is an interesting concept. Restorative justice, do you guys know what it is? Mm -hmm. And it's a concept in public schools right now where they're going away from, you know, you have to get these perfect grades, you have to, or you'll get detention if you're tardy, to a place where kids have to solve the problem. So a kid's tardy 10 times, 
they tell the teacher, well, this is what I need to make sure I'm not tardy. I need to know that I'm going to be in detention every day and they're in detention. Or I need to write an essay about being late. And suddenly the responsibility for coming up with their own consequence, um, these kids are basically forced to analyze their behavior. And this is in public schools, public high schools in really rough cities. It's really working. Mm -hmm. And I think that translates to parents. Like allow your kids to almost figure out their own consequences for their behavior. Well, and you know what's interesting about that is that oftentimes in those uh, settings, there may not be a strong parental role model. Mm -hmm. They may be um, something like what I lived. I mean, I didn't have a parent saying, be home by 9 o'clock. And you've got to, as a child, you've got to begin to set your own boundaries. Mm -hmm. Now, that has to be healthy. And hopefully the the adults in that environment are making sure, yeah, my penalty for being tardy is I get a donut. Well, and that's the thing. <laughs> they have to work with a counselor and a teacher yeah. to come up with their own restoration policy is what they call it, to restore themselves to mm-hmm. where they should be. And so working together and coming up with it, I think that makes – I love the idea of restorative justice. Mm. I do too. And I think that when kids come up with their own solutions to their problems – they're often a little harder on themselves than the adults would be. And they come up with creative ways that they own and are willing to follow through on. That's true. I've heard it as well, that oftentimes kids will be much more Mm -hmm. severe (laughs) in terms of their consequence. And maybe we should try that at home. What's an appropriate age to begin to do that? I think it's a gradual thing. I think as much opportunities you can give your children, even in the young preschool, kindergarten ages, to solve their own problems as much responsibilities you can give them, you need to do it. And it's, if it comes to that kind of disobedient behavior, it, would that be appropriate? Or are we talking about other things where it's not defiance per se? It's, for me, defiance seems to fit into a separate category all its own. I agree. I think it's defiance is different. I think this is more like you've hurt someone else or you've hurt yourself in a way, whether it's intentional or unintentional, and you solve the problem. So you accidentally spilled the milk, you have to clean it up. You did that. When you're looking at those early years of, of grade school, let's top out at fourth grade. What should that fourth grader look like, he or she, going into fifth grade? What are the characteristics of their nature that you want them to possess? By fourth grade, I think they know how to be respectful, first of all. They need to know how to be a good friend, how to share how to turn in their homework, how to complete their work on their own. They need to have the basics down of behavior. Mm. They need to know what it looks like. Uh, talk to us about the overdoing of praise, because I, you can see that as well. When children aren't really earning your praise, but because we've been told as parents, make sure you're praising your kids, we say, wow, I've never seen anybody eat a bowl of cereal the way you've just eaten that <laughs> cereal. You're awesome. High five me. <laughs> Kids can go, wow, that's all you'd need for, you know, strokes here. That's pretty easy. Do we give our kids a challenge when we're overpraising them? I think not only do we not give them a challenge, but we also kind of set ourselves up as liars. Like you say, you're the smartest kid in the entire world. And the kids figure it out. And then the kid figures out, wait, I got a C on this. I'm not the smartest kid in the entire world. My mom lied to me. Um, Do they really process it that way? I think some older kids could. Mm. I think the important thing is to praise the effort, to praise the process. You worked really hard on that math assignment. I'm proud of you. You've done a really good job of trying to learn patience. So don't overstate it. Right. And praise the process and the effort and what they're working on instead of these amazing feats. And also, don't praise something that God gave them. Why? Like, you're the most beautiful person in the world. That's a gift from God. Mm -hmm. Praise what they're doing. 
Do you make a, a distinction uh, in these early years of grade school between the gifts God has given you and the attributes that you have honed? Do you try to make that distinction for the child? Uh, I think of, you know, one of my sons is a very good writer. His teacher is just praising him about his writing style, and it, it's quite good. But that's something I'm talking to him about honing and working on that and continuing to develop it because it'll be a great skill set if he becomes an excellent writer. I'm not saying, um, you know, God necessarily has given you that skill, although that could be fair. Is there a distinction that you would make? I think there is. I think you can say something like, you know, God gave you a talent to be a writer, and I'm really proud of you for honing it and working so hard to get better. Sometimes you don't want to have them rest, right? So they they get lazy with the talent God has given them. How do you motivate a child, uh, perhaps, when you notice the gift and then the gift isn't being developed? I love your question here because I think that if we continue to praise our kids for work ethic and the process, we continue to motivate them to get better. And if the flattery comes in, they may see no reason to get better, but they also may be afraid to try because it may not meet the standards you've set about them. So they'll hide behind, what if I'm not really as good as my mom said I was? <laughs> yeah. So the praise on the effort, if they see that work ethic is what really sets up success down the road, that it's growth. And praise that. Yes. Yeah, it's so easy for us as parents to find the negative, but lean into the thing that they've done well, and kids will respond to that praise. Uh, Danny, what are some other ways to motivate our kids in the right direction? Well, doing what's right many times is driven by various motivations. I mean, lots of things. You may be people-pleasing, uh, wanting to look good. There may be a variety of things we're doing. And I, I think with kids, it's very important to bring out, out in the open, those different reasons why we might help and serve other people and just have open discussions about that. I think that's important because then we're bringing out the reality of our humanity when we serve others, not always out of the right motivations, Mm -hmm. but then helping them channel that to God wanting us to serve one another. That concept of one anothering means I'm going to love you and I'm going to live out of a a full love tank from God so that I can serve you well and fully without anything having to come back for me in return. That's it. It's good to strive towards that. Very hard to do, but it's, uh, it's great to have co- open conversations about that mm. and also model it. Can you think of a time when you tried and tried, but it just wasn't working? Or uh, let, let's take it out of your home and maybe put it into uh, a somebody that you yeah, somebody you've counseled. Yeah, that's uh, right. They tried yeah. several things and it's just not so working. They, you know, the that. child is going down the, to the dark side. What what do they do? Yeah, there are kids that just really become attracted to the dark side, and what you want to do is have an open dialogue with your child as to what is it that they're wanting. I think it's a great question. What are you pursuing? What is your, what is the win for you hmm. as you're going down this road? And where is it leading you? Just help me understand. And go towards understanding rather than fixing at that moment. Because there's something deeper that the child is wanting to fix. Maybe it's a thing of belonging. Maybe it's, it's something having to do with belonging. Maybe it's a sense of worth. Maybe it's connectedness. It could be a variety of reasons. But going towards understanding is where we can go as parents and then praying for God's wisdom in that time. And I really believe that in that conversation, you'll begin to find that there are some things you can respond to 
and then continue to encourage your child. That's good. I really appreciate that. I I think so often we prescribe things. We try to fix things. We don't ask enough questions. So that's really good. Uh, You're going to find more practical resources. We want you to be able to set up your student, your child, for success this school year. And uh, FocusOnTheFamily.com slash ThrivingStudent is the starting point. Uh, We do have a series of articles called Talking to God, which will help uh, you kind of guide your child in spiritual growth. Uh, Don't forget about our free Best Year Ever email resource that will provide you with some timely encouragement along the way during the next several weeks. It's provided by our parenting department, and you can sign up at FocusOnTheFamily.com slash ThrivingStudent. We're here for you at Focus on the Family. If you need any help with your parenting, your marriage, or just generally in your family, call us or stop online. We've got a lot of great resources, books, articles, video, and a counseling team as well. I'm John Fuller, and on behalf of Danny Huerta and the entire team, thanks for listening to the Thriving Student Podcast. Podcast.